Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, for bringing the church into a YMCA uh, gymnasium and for being here on this uh, holiday weekend. I hope you had a good 4th of July and it's great to be able to gather with you all here. It's my privilege to open up God's word with you all this morning. And so if we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie and it is, it's a great privilege of mine to serve here as one of the pastors. Uh, it's also been uh, noted to me by a few different people. Apparently there's some sort of uh, soccer match or something that's happening um, and so I'm not supposed to go long. Apparently, I don't know. Um, so we'll we'll see if I can accommodate uh, this morning. But we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're journeying through this this summer. Let me read this quote. There's a, a theologian uh, commentator by the name of Philip Ryken, and in his commentary, I think he gives a really helpful summation, particularly too if you're maybe you're new to this book. This might be your first Sunday, or you're just hey, even in the summer, we're in and out a lot, and so. It's like, hey, what, what's, how do we even make sense of this book? Because it is complex, and yet, in the complexity of the book, it's actually helping us sort of navigate uh, this complex world that we find ourselves in. And Riken says it this way. He says, remember, this is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we get the answer, but the kind of book that helps us to know how to serve God when we do not have all the answers. And so, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we bring in here this morning lots of different things. One of the things we don't bring with us are all of the answers. And this book is helping us orient our heart and our mind towards, okay, how do we still worship God, love God, trust in God, even when we don't get all of our questions answered, when we still have doubts and insecurities and things that we're wondering about. And he says, but they also, the other part of this to keep in mind is also part of a larger book. And so what he's referring to here is the totality of scripture that gives fuller answers to many of the same questions that Ecclesiastes only begins begins to address. And so you and I have the great privilege to actually know where the story is heading, how the story resolves, to know this bigger story that we're part of. And so Ecclesiastes is one chapter, in essence, one part of this overall story that God's written, uh, that we get in his scripture that is breathed out by God, that it's this infallible word. And so it's our privilege to study it, and it's our great joy to also know that some of the complexity that comes up in Ecclesiastes resolves and makes sense when we understand the fuller story. And so this morning, we are, we're kind of nearing the back half or back uh, section of the book. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. If you brought a Bible, turn there. We're going to work through this, uh, through these verses here this morning. There's some paperback Bibles on the tables in the back. If at any point you want to get up, you can grab one of those, turn to page 621. And if you don't own a Bible or you've got one in some translation, maybe it's hard to make sense of, like, would you just take one of those home with you uh, as a gift? We'd love yeah, just to be able to provide that for you. Or you can get a phone out and go to cpwp.life, swipe over to the second card, it says message notes. And so the, the scripture this morning, as well as information you see on the, the slides, quotes, things like that are all there. And so I want to go ahead and read all 12 verses, and then we'll make our way through this. But as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word this morning? Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. 
but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse seven, so go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I want to do this morning, there's some themes that we've read here in these 12 verses that have been reoccurring throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you've been here through part of this series, there's probably some things that you're hearing. It's like, okay, I hear some familiar things, the way he talks about life under the sun, the vanity, which is this idea here, something that's meaningless, or it's like a vapor or a mist. It's like we try and hold on to things that kind of slips through our fingers. There's this call here to recognize just uh, the fleeting nature of everything in this world world and even wrestling through, hey, how come it seems to be that the, the people who do the right thing don't always get rewarded as such, and people maybe that don't do the right thing seems to get, get some of the rewards in life, all sorts of tension. And because there's some overlapping themes, what I want to do this morning is approach this a little bit differently. I want to look at sort of the beginning, the first six verses, and then the last two, and then circle back to what is in the middle section. And sort of move hopefully a bit more quickly through those first two and then sort of camp out a bit in the middle section, which will kind of be our, our last one. So if you're like, hey, did you skip some verses? Yes, that's in, intentionally so, because I think these bookends kind of help inform, okay, how we're actually called to live. But the first six verses, a way that we can think about this is approaching the, the teacher here is telling us, here's what is certain in life. Here are things that you can bank on. Here are things that you can know 100% for sure, all right? Because he tells us, all right, he begins in verse one, he says, but all this I laid to heart. Now, all this is a reference back to what we studied last week in Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Particularly the conclusion to chapter eight talks about the fact that as much as we might search and try and gather knowledge, there are things that are still a mystery. There are things that we cannot know. You can Google all you want, you can read all the books you want, you can listen to all sorts of amazing podcasts, you can do all of those things. And yet at the end of the day, there are still things that we don't know. So now he's driving, he said, but all of this I laid to heart. So I kind of pondered those things and he's going to then tell us what we definitively can know, what is certain. So he says, I laid it to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, kind of like whatever, regardless of what you and I experience, if it's like sort of approval or if it's rejection, man does not know, but both are before him. And so the key thing to kind of focus in on that regardless of what you and I carry with us right now, that we are being carried, that you and I, our lives, everything about us is in the hand of God. 
that there's nothing that has happened that's outside of his control. There's nothing that has happened to you. There's nothing that you've done that has caught him by surprise, that everything is in his hand. And it's a hand that is carrying us, that it's nurturing us, it's providing for us. It might also be a, a hand that at times for our good might discipline us because this God that we worship and serve longs for us to, to flourish and to be made more into the image of his son. But big picture, if we're gonna talk about what we can count on, what is certain is we are in the hand of God. And this has been the way the story has played out from the very beginning, that God put our original parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, that they were in his hand, they were under his protection and his care. But if you know the story, you know that very quickly, we only get a couple of chapters. By the third chapter, there's rebellion. There's an act that says, I don't wanna be in your hand, God. I wanna take matters into my own hands and I wanna be like God and I wanna partake in this fruit and I wanna kinda know everything. It's this reaching for this sort of, I want omniscience and omnipotence, I wanna be all powerful and all knowledgeable and all of those things. The qualities that only God himself can possess, we're like, I want in on that. And it begins to spiral things out of control. So what we read here in verse three, here's part of verse three is up here on the screen. It says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And so we are in the hand of God and yet, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us, there's still this ongoing issue that we, our hearts, and we don't like to hear this, and this might not be the, the verse that we put on the coffee cup that we look at when we're sipping our coffee in the, in the morning, like, yes, my heart, it's full of evil, right? Um, and there's madness in, in, in my heart, and we might not hang that up as a poster in, in our office, but the reality of this is true, and if we don't focus in on this for a moment and understand the certainty of this, that this is talking about every single person, past, present, and future, who's ever walked the earth, except for King Jesus, we won't actually understand this story that, that we're part of and how we've contributed to it and ultimately what is certain for us. So certainly we're in the hand of God and certainly we've also rebelled and so there is this evil that exists in my heart and in your heart and we are stuck. And because of this, it's not just because we want to, you know, we want to shift the blame. This is how it always plays out. Go and read Genesis 3 sometime this week and you will see the response of Adam after Eve partakes and she gives some to her husband who it says who was with her and he was passive and he stood by and he didn't step up and he didn't combat the serpent and all of these things and then the Lord God confronts them and Adam says, well this woman that you gave me, she gave me some. There's always this sort of shifting the blame. And we got to stop with that. We've got to repent of our sin and say, no, the wickedness, it's in my heart. I rebelled. I'm actively disobedient. That's the stark kind of reality. That is something that is actually certain. And there's a madness, I would say, that exists in our hearts because we keep thinking, if I could just get what I want, if I could just do things on my own, it actually will result in you know, more knowledge and more peace and more flourishing. And it's just crazy. It's madness, it's folly. And all of this has led to, and here's what is certain, all right, and this is a theme we've seen over and over again, all right, even in our uh, confession of, of sin that we, we did corporately together that this morning, you, you heard this reality. So if we were kind of like, here's the, you know, like, kind of like where's this story heading? What's the big thing that the teacher is saying? We're in the hand of, hand of God, but we've rebe rebelled, and because of that, it says, while they live and after that, is basically this. Here's the big reveal, right, which we probably all see that was coming. This is no surprise, and yet, we don't think about this as often as we should. That at the end of the day, you're going to die, I'm going to die, death is coming, and this is actually what humanity deserves for the rebellion against God. 
And so what the writer here does, what the teacher is doing is saying, here's what is certain. And I don't know if you notice this, I'll put it back up here on the screen. This is some of the, the contrast in verse two. He begins to lay out then everybody, all right? Sort of this all encompassing, all right? The righteous are gonna die and the wicked are going to die. The good are gonna die and the evil are going to die, all right? The clean and the unclean. They're both going to perish. Death is coming for both of them. To the religious, as it talks about one who makes sacrifices and one who doesn't, the religious and the irreligious, they're all going to die. Death is coming. It says to the one that is, that is good and to the sinner, all going to die. To the one that makes a vow, all right, when it says I swear, and the one who breaks a vow, they're all going to perish. They're all going to die. Unless we think for a moment like, yeah, but you know, at least I'm doing better because I'm on the left side of that, that list. Go back and read verse three, right? No, we're more on the right side of things, that we are wicked and evil and unclean and irreligious and a sinner and a vow breaker and all, all of those, those things. And the certainty is that death is coming. And then there's this transition that, that happens, all right? Look with me at verse four. It says this. In light of this certainty, he says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. Meaning, while you're alive, there's reason to actually hope, all right? Because there are things that you can ponder, there's things that you can consider, there's changes that you can actually make while you have the time, and there's some hope that you will have. And then there's this really sort of odd proverb that is given, this kind of line of wisdom, and it says this. So, he who is joined with all the living has hope, for, all right, a living dog is better than a dead Lion. There's your big takeaway for today, all right? There you go. You're welcome. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Like, what in the world is this trying to communicate, all right? Now, a couple things we have to understand, all right, is for one, the lion in that time, in that, that place, and still today, right? Like, when you go to the zoo, I mean, that is, that is the thing you're usually going to see. It's like, okay, yeah, here's the birds, and here's these other things, and they're interesting, but usually, kind of the centerpiece is the lion. It is majestic, it was also, you know, it was this, it's literally the king of the jungle, right? I mean, it's this thing that is just to be, it's mesmerizing, it's all powerful. And the writer is saying, yes, it is. And it might even have significance for the people of, of Israel, for the, for the people of Judah, and how they're referred to, even in this lion imagery. And yet, in all of it, if it's dead, what good actually is it? And so the calling here is, but he who is joined with the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. And so we kind of get that. Like, yeah, it might be majestic, but if it's dead, all right, and then we hear a living dog, and we probably think something like this, right? It's like, oh, in that cute, like this cute little puppy, all right, and you look at it on the screen, and some of you are like, yes, okay, we're gonna go get a puppy now, all right? Um, that is not quite the imagery, all right? It's not comparing a cute little puppy that you have in your home or cute little dog compared to a dead lion, all right? The imagery here, because to the people back then, dogs were not something, well, I'll just put it this way. How we treat our dogs, how we view dogs, they would, if, they, if those people could kind of transport here to 2019, they'd be like, what is wrong with these people? Do they not know that these are these disgusting animals, these scavengers that, that run the streets, like that we are trying to get rid of them, all right? So this is, you know, more sort of the, the imagery. They're just digging through the trash. They weren't pets. They weren't welcome. They certainly didn't sleep in your bed, right? Things like that, all right? I'm not judging. I'm, I'm part of the problem, all right? But... That would have been their view, all right? Not this amazing, you know, it's our family pet and all of that, but rather like, wow, 
even this nasty animal that nobody wanted is better than this majestic lion because the lion is dead. And so it's a call, like, will we pay attention to what is certain? How will that inform your life? How can it bring transformation to not move past this, to not try and ignore it? So many things in our culture today are trying to put off death. All right, now, we can be pro-exercise. We meet in a YMCA for crying out loud, right? Like, this is good. My daughter and I, we went to a spin class yesterday. She outworked me. I almost died on the bike, right? But all of these are an effort to actually be in shape. Those are good things. We can celebrate that. And yet, it doesn't matter how many spin classes I go to. It doesn't matter how much good food that I actually eat. Like, death is coming. I can't avoid it. And to avoid it, we miss out on the opportunity to learn from it. And so the imagery here, maybe a way to think about it is this hourglass. Will you and I acknowledge that time is actually running out? Eric made mention of, of it earlier in the service. He stole my joke, actually, because I was going to say, you are now closer to your death when this sermon, you know, uh, now than when the sermon began, right? I mean, that's just the reality of this situation. Every day that passes, every moment that passes, time is running out. You and I have been allotted a certain amount of time that in the hourglass, we each were apportioned a certain amount of sand there and it's beginning to pour through And at one point, it will actually run out. And so acknowledging that, there's something that we can learn in that. This isn't for us to be like, wow, this is the most morbid, depressing, glad I came to church today, you know, um, that sort of thing. It teaches us. David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backward, which I've referred to a few times throughout this series, says this. When we understand this, we actually can die well meaning we can actually even live well. So look at these words. He says this, to die well means that you realize death is actually the limit God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. To die well means I realize death is not simply something that happens to me. It happens to me because I am a sinner. To die well means I realize that every time I see a coffin, it preaches to me that the world is broken and fallen and under the curse of death, and I am a part of it. To die well means realizing that from the day I was born, I lived under the sentence of death. To die well means everything I have in this world I hold with open hands because I love Jesus more than anything and anyone else, and I am happy to go home to him. That ultimately, that's even what the Apostle Paul would speak of, that to die would somehow be gain. It's not because he had this morbid fascination with with death, He had a lot of work to do, things that the Lord was using him in, but he's also like, hey, at the end of the day, I understand that this is fleeting, but I am part of this eternal story and that God has made it possible for me to be reconnected, to have this communion with my maker that I was created for. And he was so passionate about that that he lived in light of his impending death, which caused him to go out with a sense of urgency so that more people might actually know. And so how is it with you and me? What if we lived with more of that urgency? What if we saw that the time is, is running out? How might that transform the way that we actually live, the things that we would focus on? Now, that's what's certain, all right? Look at verses 11 to 12 for a moment. It also tells us some things that are uncertain, even your translation might use the word that there's, it says time and chance. Now, that doesn't mean things outside of the hand of God, but it's from our perspective. It just seems random. It seems like, wait, how did this actually occur? 11 to 12 says this. Again, I saw that under the sun, so not a perspective of, of God and his purpose, but when we just look at earthly circumstances, when you look at your life, when you reflect back on just this past week or you think ahead to this upcoming week, 
There's a mindset that can be prevalent when we focus under the sun, and the teacher's making some observations, I think, that are helpful about the uncertainty, about the things that we try and control, and we can't. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We don't know how much sand we got in the hourglass. All we know is that it's running out. And so what often happens though is we start to observe our life and we want to strategize and we want to plan and there's good in all of that. If you're like, ah, I never plan, I never put anything together. That's not necessarily healthy. That, that, there's a lot of wisdom to thinking things through and to prayerfully considering things and all of it. But I can also confess this to you. Maybe you can relate to this. As I read through these descriptions, I'm like, each one was sort of like a punch to the gut a little bit. Of like, oh, I see myself doing that. So when it says the race is not to the swift, our mindset is, no, if I just train enough, and even just thinking in a, an actual physical race, if I train enough, I, if I do this, like the one who will get rewarded is the one who's trained the most, who has proven themselves to be the best. But the teacher's looking out at the world and saying, maybe, sometimes that happens, maybe 99% of the time that it actually happens, but there are those exceptions, aren't there? It's like, wait, what in the world happened? How did that transpire? I thought we had prepared better. It says, nor the battle to the strong. Sometimes those that are, have the most strength, all right, the most might, they don't actually always win. And so he's confused by this. He's like, there's some uncertainty here, all right? Nor bread to the, to the wise, meaning like, hey, you might be really wise, you might steward things well, and yet at the end of the day, struggle to actually provide for you and for, for your family. You might not have your daily bread. Like, how is that happening? How are these people who are very unwise, seemingly like overflowing, like their pantry is always full? Nor riches to the intelligent. Like, oh no, I'm, I'm well read, I'm learned, I've got this. Maybe you've got multiple degrees behind your name, whatever it happens to be, all right? And therefore think, okay, that's gonna result in a certain kind of economic bracket, but it doesn't always work that way. So again, it's looking, it's like, this is sort of uncertain, like what is actually happening? You know, nor favor to those with knowledge. Time and chance happen to them all. This is the world that we inhabit. So there's the certainty that everything is in God's hands, there's this also this certainty of the fact that we've rebelled and that there's actual death that's coming for us. And then there are things that are uncertain as we seek to sort of live. I, I'm reminded of this passage in the book of James. Uh, James certainly had read the book of Ecclesiastes, all right, and seems to make reference to it in some pretty direct ways. Look at these words in James 4, 13 to 16. He says, come now, you who say. So he's referencing people that will kind of look out and like, okay, I'm gonna get a good plan together. I'm gonna think through things and here we're gonna go. He says this, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's like somebody's put together a business plan, like we're gonna go to this town, we're gonna set up shop there, we're gonna invest, we got all these things, we're gonna hire this person, there's this market that hasn't been tapped into, there's a great plan that we've put together. We've got investors, we've got all of these things that are taking place, all right? We'll spend a year there and trade and we'll make a profit. So they're kind of looking ahead, they're projecting about their numbers, they're like, this is gonna be a great, great thing. He says, yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, I know we sort of blow past that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know that, but think about it. You and I honestly 
have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Both in things of celebration, they're like, I never expected that to happen, and things that break your heart. And then somewhere in between. We really have no idea. Which is why we need that certainty, that reminder that we are in the hand of God, regardless of what our circumstances would communicate. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. So James here, he's not knocking getting a plan together. He's like, but what's your posture in that? This is teaching us, the teacher, that God through this teacher wants us to reflect on like, hey, how do you think through these things in your life? Is it if I just do this, there'll always be this sort of output. I'll always get the things that I want. He says, so let me help you here. He says, what is your life? And here's this imagery that we've looked at, this havel throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, this idea of mist or vapor, something fleeting. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. There's an uncertainty in the world. There's part of my heart that thinks if I just do this, then this result will have to happen. And it even goes further where the arrogance begins to creep in and an entitlement that begins to creep in is God, I did this. I made the plan. I made the investment. I did these things. I started executing on the plans and I didn't get the results that I wanted. What is up with that? Where are you, God, in the midst of this? I'm doing the right things. And there's these other people that seemingly are and they're seemingly getting everything and flourishing and you get angry. What do we do with that? What's this calling us to? It's saying there's an arrogance that exists where we think, oh, this is up to me. I'm in control. It's wanting to be a God again. And James tells us, hey man, listen, got a little, I want to clue you in on a little secret. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes and most people won't ever even remember. And this is being communicated as shocking as that is out of love and of care because when I view myself as anything but a mist or a vapor, I'm on this path of arrogance and of pride and of trying to put myself on the throne where only God deserves to be and there's this boasting. So it's not anti-planning, but can we just admit that there's some chaos? And I don't know what it is in your particular field, the things, maybe, maybe you're a parent and you're just like, I read the books and I got these things and if I just do this and this and this and I follow this, it'll result in this perfect child that is perfectly obedient to me or who will sleep through the night, guaranteed. I don't know about those other loser parents, but this thing works, right? Or maybe in your particular, what do you do for a career, all right, that you think, I got this plan together, I've laid out this business plan, great, yes and amen to all of that. Or as a student, you're thinking, okay, I studied, I prepared, I did all of this stuff. And then sometimes maybe you just get that exam and you're just like, I don't remember any of this being on the study guide. I tell you what, I get probably, I don't know, I probably should go and count at some point, but over the years, being a pastor for long enough and sort of like, if we were to use the term, my industry, which is a weird way to refer to the church, so forgive me for that, but in this sort of world that, that we're in, over the years, you sign up for something, you purchase a product, you get on email lists, you have no idea how you even got on them, right? Um, and I kid you not, there's probably seven, eight, nine, I don't know, 10 uh, emails every single day that I get that fundamentally, if you boil it down, is if you do this, 
plus this, plus these things, your church will have this exponential growth. Now, I'm all for church growing, wanting to see more people meet Jesus. That is an amazing thing. We pray for that, we ask for that, but it sometimes can be kind of spelled out like you just do this and you do this and it's gonna have these results. But then you come back to Ecclesiastes. You come back to the book of James. You're like, yeah, you can learn from that. You can, you can glean some wisdom, but at the end of the day, we're in the hand of God and we gotta trust him regardless of circumstances. And so we get this question, how should we then live? And so here's what I wanna do for the remaining few minutes. Let's go back to what was in the middle. Verses seven to 10, and we get this invitation to like, hey, in light of both the certainty and the uncertainty, there's a calling that the Lord has given to you, a way to flourish, to enjoy life, to embrace what God has given to you, that he is a father who gives good gifts to his children. And that doesn't mean your life is gonna be perfect. That doesn't mean that there's not gonna be things that you plan and strategize to make better. But there are some gifts that he's given to us that are sort of, in some ways, many of them very basic things that I know for my, at least in my heart, I can sort of skip past or overlook. And there's a reminder here, hey, let's thank God for what he has given to us. And so rather than reading these again, but look at verse seven to 10, here is uh, Eugene Peterson, who his version, his kind of translation is called the, the message. Um, I liked how he talked about verses seven to 10. Here is the words then in his sort of adaption of, of these themes. He says, seize life and eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning and don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one and whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. So let's look for a moment at just these things that are laid out in verses seven to 10, and it starts with this imperative. It starts with this command in verse seven. Quite simply, it's just go. I've got some things for you to do. There's some certainty in life. Even death is coming, and that can be a, a hard thing to wrestle with, and then there's uncertainty, but just know this. God has given you time. He's given you this place. You are not here by accident. How should you and I orient our lives? And he said, so go. Don't sit back, but go. And then the things he tells us to go and to do, the first thing, our first calling, he says is, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. That God is for feasting, he's for celebration. This practically, even this summer, maybe you've heard this, we're hosting and different people are throwing table parties. Why? It comes out of this, that there is so much enjoyment in being able to sit down and just enjoy a meal and a good drink. And if you're like, was that really wine back then? Yeah, it was, it's probably good wine too, right? And so they're sitting down and they're enjoying these things and it's gladdening the heart and there's conversation that is flowing. Our discipleship strategy, we talk about engaging people in the pulpit, meaning the Sunday gathering, the chair, meaning times that you spend with the Lord reading your Bible, prayer, kind of personal spiritual disciplines. And then we have the table as part of that as well. And it's this idea that we need to gather, we need to get around a table and have a meal. And maybe there's a study that corresponds to that, great. But there's this invitation, there's something powerful that happens. And so here every single day, multiple times per day, 
you and I have an opportunity to actually eat our bread with joy. Now you're like, well, I don't eat bread. Okay, whatever it is for you, okay? But like, there is food that you can eat. You can receive it with a thankful heart. You can drink your wine with a merry heart. Maybe not for breakfast, but you get the idea, right? And so in this regular occurrence, they just stop and be like, all right, Lord, thank you that this is one of the things that actually is not going away. I love the way David Gibson spoke of it. He says, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. That's not what the writer here is communicating, but those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. That the way the scriptures speak of where things are heading is to this, this great feast, this wedding celebration, and there is good food and drink and company with, with people, and it's like this epic party that we get to be part of. That's where the story is heading. It's not you as some disembodied soul floating around up in the heavens somewhere. It's good food and drink and relationships. And you and I, guess what? We get to practice that now. We get to practice for eternity. You're gonna go to lunch today. You're gonna have dinner today. Like you are getting ready for eternity. And so enjoy it and celebrate it. And then he says this, uh, he continues on and he tells us like, hey, actually put on all white all the time. Now there's some practical things for this because they live in a very hot climate. And if they're putting the dark, dark colors on, they're just gonna be, maybe it's just gonna draw the heat. They're gonna get hotter than they you know, might otherwise. And there could be certainly some of that, but there's also this imagery here of like putting on your, your finest clothes. Now that doesn't mean every single moment suddenly you're like wearing a tuxedo everywhere you go. Like, dude, it's awkward. You're just out at the park, right? But there is this call like, hey, there's things that the Lord invites us into. Wear all white. Like you get to celebrate. There are things that you get to enjoy. He says, put oil on your head, which is a way for particular in that climate where the skin would get dried out. I know that's nothing we know of here in Florida, but there are places in the world, right, where things get, get dried out. And so let's put this oil and there's a fragrance. It's kind of like put the cologne on, put the perfume on, get the nice clothes on, all of this. And there's a lot of just even wedding imagery that's in these particular invitations. This is our calling. And then he says this, enjoy life with your spouse, with the, with the spouse or with your wife, he references here, the one that you love. So maybe you're in a hard season, you're like, I, I don't know, like I can't really enjoy this person. You have to pay attention as well that it says with the one that, that you love, that you can commit to love, that you can care, and maybe some of the enjoyment will actually start to come. Maybe there's some things that you gotta work through and it's a hard season, the Bible speaks to that. It's not naive about the difficulties of marriage and the struggles that there can be, but there also is, hey, let's not lose sight. God is the one who's designed marriage. God is the one who's designed intimacy. God is the, the one who speaks of, of these things. God is not surprised by these things. God is not embarrassed by these things. This is part of God's design. Let me read to you a couple verses, unless you, you, for a moment, if you would think I'm lying. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with, the deli with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This wasn't the family style service last week, all right? Um, and so, look at that. Some of you are like, I should read the Bible more. This is amazing, right? It's your new life first. I don't know. You work that out with the Lord, okay? But here's this invitation. Like, you have been given, if you've been given a, a spouse, like, there's this enjoyment that, that you have as a way to glorify God, to honor him, to thank him. 
Paul would speak of this in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So apparently the Lord is all for prayer, but even then he's like, hey, all right, stop that for a moment and do some other things. <laughs> Look at this, this is our God. If you've got this vision of God who's just this cosmic killjoy, he's like, put on some good clothes, put on some, you know, get, get dressed up, have a good meal, have a good drink, enjoy a spouse that the Lord has given to you. The Lord has provided in so many ways. There's relationships to enjoy. And then embrace the life that the Lord has actually granted to you. And so this is spoken of in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom, basically in the place where, where people are dead, to which you are going. And so embrace the life, all of it. The job you might work, the things that you do in the home, the things that you volunteer for, whatever it happens to be, there's opportunities to glorify God in and through all of it. That doesn't mean it's not without pain, frustration. Man, we live in a world that is still cursed, all right? That is just flat out how it is. There's gonna be pain and suffering and difficulty. Things don't always go according to plan. Well, how about we stop complaining and have some contentment, right? I'm preaching to my own heart here because that is so difficult at times, but to say, Lord, I wanna just embrace what you've given to me. You're a good God, you give good gifts. And even the simple reminders of a meal each and every day is an opportunity to stop and just thank you and to redirect my thoughts and affections toward you and that more than just a meal you gave us, and more than just a daily meal, you gave us this ultimate meal that we're gonna celebrate here as a church in just a few moments together of communion, the Lord's Supper that reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, of the wedding supper of the lamb that is coming, that this is just a foretaste. Like all of those things help us see the bigger story that we're part of. So embrace the, the life the Lord has granted to you. Philip Ryken recounts this, account, recounts this story from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, in this sermon on this particular verse, verse 10, Charles Spurgeon described a young man who dreamed of standing under a, a banyan tree and preaching eloquent sermons to people in India. My dear fellow, says Spurgeon, why don't you try the streets of London first and see whether you are eloquent there? Each one of us should do whatever work God has given us to do, not what he has given someone else to do. Are you embracing the work that the Lord has given to you? Let's close with this then. I wanna ask this question. If this is the invitation, so just kind of this basic summary of like don't overlook just the, the mundane things of life. Use them as an opportunity to celebrate what the Lord has given you in the midst of even death that is coming and the uncertainty, but know that there's these great gifts Ask yourself this, what if you and I lived like God has already approved what you do? Look for a moment back at verse seven. It's really fascinating. We have to see this if it's going to rightly motivate how we approach all of this. He says, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. And then the back half of the verse says, for God has already approved what you do. Now, I don't think the teacher then fully knew what he was communicating, but we do on the other side of the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. That there's this approval, there's this justification that we have. So often we approach life with, I've gotta earn, I've gotta prove that I'm enough. 
And the Lord is simply inviting us, hey, why don't you just rest? Why don't you enjoy a meal? Why don't you enjoy relationships? Why don't you just enjoy the work that I've given to you, even with all its frustrations, and not use those things? Because you can't worship me if you're worshiping those things. And you've been made to worship me. And you can worship me through those things, but you can't worship those things in and of themselves. You can't find your identity there. You will never find any sort of rest. And so there's this reminder here that the Lord takes pleasure when we find pleasure in these things. When we live with a posture that is like, hey, we understand that we are the children of God, for those of you that are in Christ. I've been reading through this book, and there's this uh, account. uh, The book's called Seculosity by a guy named David Zoll. And in it, he recounts this story of a woman. Uh, this story occurred a few years ago. Her name is Emily Rapp. Um, and she had a, a son, all right? And the son was born, his name is Ronan. The son was born uh, with a disease that was incurable. There's literally nothing that they could do. There was no treatment for it. They just said, hey, I'm so, so sorry. After a few months of this boy being alive, they were literally like, hey, uh, he is going to die. And just before his third birthday, their son passed away. In the days and weeks leading up to that, she was blogging and she was writing and here's some of the words that she said. She says, I have abandoned the future and with it any visions of Ronan scoring a perfect SAT or sprinting across the stage with a Harvard diploma in his hand. We're not waiting for Ronan to make us proud. We don't expect future returns on our investment. We've chucked the graphs of development milestones and we avoid parenting magazines at the pediatrician's office. Ronan has given us a terrible freedom from expectations, a magical world where there are no goals, no prizes to win, no outcomes to monitor, discuss, and compare. She speaks of this terrible freedom, terrible because she's losing her son, and a freedom because she doesn't have to buy into the narrative that we constantly have to prove that we're enough. And David Zoll, commenting on this, says this, the terrible freedom she mentions is a freedom nonetheless, to love your children as they are and for who they are rather than for who they will be or who you want them to become. It is the freedom to cherish their being over their doing, radically so, the actual present over the possible future. Emily invokes a form of love that is fundamentally unconcerned with results or behavior because it can't be and is all the more powerful for it. In doing so, she allows us a peek at what uncoerced, unconditional love really looks like in human relationships. But more than that, she gives us a glimpse of grace, the way Christians believe that God loves his children. You and I have this calling to step into a space, to live the life that we are invited to live when we realize God has already approved what you do. That doesn't mean he approves everything, that you just go and sin. But what he's saying is, because of the finished work of Jesus, you don't have to prove you are loved, you are whole, you are spotless, you're literally wearing all white because you're clothed in the righteousness, the white robes of King Jesus. That is how God sees you and that frees you up, not to worship the things of this world, but to worship God through the things of this world that he's given for you to enjoy because the whole thing is a story of grace. It's a glimpse of grace, the way that Christians believe that God loves his children. She references her son Ronan. In God's eyes, I am Ronan, you are Ronan. If you're in Christ, you can't do anything, you can't accomplish anything. There's not anything that you can write home about, like, look at all that I accomplished. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. I'll conclude with these words, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by, the, by grace you have been saved through faith, 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The storyline of the scriptures is about a God who sent his son to live a perfect life, to prove, to showcase like he is enough. And his enoughness that took him all the way to a cross and all of his holiness, everything was given to you in this beautiful transaction and all of our sin, the wrath of God that should have been poured out on me and on you was instead poured out on Jesus. It's a gift. Let every common gift that we experience remind you of the greatest gift, the gift of God's own son, the gift of salvation, and then let it spur us on to good works. And even those God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them as an opportunity to worship him. So let me pray, and we're gonna continue in this, this time of worship together and ask that you just consider for a moment, what is the Lord calling you? Maybe what's something you've made ultimate? Maybe confess that. Or do you need to celebrate the reality of the, the story of God's grace? Maybe practically begin thinking through, hey, how can I commit to even see the ordinary mundane things of life as opportunities to worship God, to see that as your calling, to commit to, Lord, I'm gonna fight for contentment in the gospel. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your constant grace and mercy that you lavish us with your grace. It's not something you just sort of drip out to us, that you pour it out on us. We thank you for this calling that we've been invited into amidst both this certainty of this story and the uncertainty of, of this world. And sometimes there's some tensions and some complexities and we don't know what to do. Thank you for the reminder that we can enjoy these good gifts and we can honor you in doing that as we remember that we are part of the story of grace that we've got nothing to prove, that we can't prove anything, but Jesus, we rest in you and your finished work. And so Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would lead us in repentance and confession as we take a couple moments now to quiet our hearts, God, and that you, Spirit, would press into our hearts more deeply this ultimate story of grace, that that's what we celebrate in, and that there's this ultimate celebration that awaits us one day. So God, we ask that you would hear our prayers now, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience great joy. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.